0: History time. Uh, I think I need to work on that. Anyway, James Clark Ross is something of a man crush for me. He was competent, compassionate and handsome as fuck. Much as I fancy him and respect his achievements, this episode is as much about the ships he commanded, as their story extends beyond the three forays Ross and Crozier made below the circle. After much backroom politicking to garner support for further surveying the Southern Hemisphere by magnetic luminary Edward Sabine, noted by some as possibly the very model of the modern Major General, parodied by Gilbert and Sullivan, and spurred by the persuasive correspondence of the Prussian polymath Alexander von Humboldt, the Royal Society and the British Association for the Advancement of Science recommended James Clark Ross as leader of an expedition to find the South Magnetic Pole in 1839. A change of government from Whig to Tory threatened to scotch the expedition due to the expenses it placed on the public purse. But an oddity of political history that could only arise in Victorian England, the ladies of the bedchamber crisis, saw the newly elected Robert Peel refuse to form government. The supportive Lord Melbourne remained in power and keen to see the magnetic surveyors sail. Ross and his fellow officer and close friend from their many years in the Arctic together Francis Crozier, were placed in command of the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terra, respectively. These, like the Fury and the Heckler used by Parry in the north, were bomb ships, featuring heavily reinforced hulls. Designed to withstand the forces exerted by the recoil of heavy mortars, artillery firing projectiles in high-arc ballistic trajectories, the Erebus and Terra were considered well suited to the stresses anticipated while working among pack-ice. This inherent strength didn't prevent the Admiralty reinforcing the ship's innards with oak beams, doubling the thickness of the decks, and sandwiching tallow-soaked naught cloth between the deck layers, and then double planking the hulls and sheathing them in the thickest copper sheeting available. Watertight bulkheads separated each ship into 3 compartments to guard against holding by the ice. These manifold modifications made the Erebus and Terra the first ships fitted out specifically to tackle Antarctic ice conditions. Winters spent above the Arctic Circle compelled Ross not to skimp on the victuals or the comfort of his crew, and the ships were well supplied with food and fitted out to ensure maximum dryness and warmth, these last attended to by custom designed central heating systems. Unable to embark civilians, James Clark Ross enlisted a staff of scientists as ship's assistant surgeons. The Erebus ship's surgeon was Dr Robert McCormick, who had previously sailed with Ross on the Heckler under William Parry, and later with Robert Fitzroy aboard the Beagle. Captain Fitzroy's high regard for his gentleman companion, Charles Darwin, caused McCormick to feel underappreciated. Opportunities to collect specimens ashore fell increasingly frequently to Darwin while McCormick was left on the ship. When Captain Fitzroy arranged to send Darwin's material back to London from Rio de Janeiro, McCormick spat the dummy and had himself invalided home, as he'd done in previous voyages where his temperament and tastes were at odds with those of his superiors. Officers don't desert ship, they are invalided home. Ross appointed Joseph Dalton Hooker, the son of renowned botanist William Jackson Hooker, as assistant surgeon to McCormick on the Erebus. Hooker Later to outshine his father as the leading botanist of his era, carried a proof copy of Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle among his reading material aboard the Erebus, given to him by Charles Lyell, the leading geologist of the day, and whose own work, Principles of Geology, Darwin read while on the Beagle. Lyell's ideas spurred Darwin's own thinking about the landscapes and biology he encountered while sailing with Captain Fitzroy and travelling in South America. When Hooker returned from the Antarctic following an introduction mediated by McCormick, Darwin sought Hooker's assistance classifying the botanical material he collected in South America and the two became close friends, Hooker providing much valued support and feedback as Darwin's observations and ideas coalesced into what became On the Origin of Species. Between the metal of the ships, the Arctic experience of the captains and the scientific retinue assembled to make the most of the opportunities the expedition presented, the Erebus and the Terra stand out as the best prepared Antarctic expedition the world had yet witnessed. The achievements arising from their three consecutive summers below the Antarctic Circle reflect the care with which Ross assembled and employed his resources. Ross met with Ballany before departing London who informed him about the islands and the ice-free passages he discovered while sailing Antarctic waters for the Enderby brothers. The ships departed in October 1839. The Admiralty orders gave Ross and Crozier a timetable for their activities and required the usual charting and claiming of new lands Royal Navy officers carried out on scientific voyages, and the Royal Society provided a sizable book outlining in detail the scientific measurements required of them. The ships sailed to the Eels Keguelin in the South Atlantic, putting ashore their sheep to graze and embarking on two months of magnetic, tidal, astronomical and gravitational measurements. While transiting from the Eels Keguelin to Hobart, a storm separated the ships and the Erebus bosun fell from the rigging and drowned. Sailing folklore tells me that few sailors knew how to swim well until very recently. I don't know if this is true or if any of the reasons proffered to explain the phenomenon are valid, but I do know that if you fall overboard in open waters, you're pretty much fucked. Ships don't turn quickly, waves impede visual contact, clothing and boots drag at you, and cold water, if it doesn't drown you on impact with an involuntary gasp response, saps your strength quickly. I know a Royal Navy veteran who experienced five man overboard situations in his career. They only managed to keep track of the sailor in the water and retrieve them on one occasion, and they were already dead when drawn from the water. If you go over the gunwale, you're a goner. Regular drills train sailors how to respond to the cry, Man overboard! as effectively as possible. But effectively as possible and effective aren't the same thing. Never go full over the gunwale. For those of you playing along at home, Rule 34 is now in force. Fathom that one out if you can, Noah and Heath. Dogged by icebergs, the two ships made it to Hobart a day apart in mid-August 1840. Permanent magnetic observation stations were planned for the Cape of Good Hope and St Helena to enhance the British contributions to the Great International Magnetic Cooperation. Ross was charged with establishing a station in Hobart. Ross oversaw the convict Labor erecting the magnetic observation station and caught up in the newspaper articles about Wilkes and DeViers' attempts to find the South Magnetic Pole. Lieutenant Governor Sir John Franklin's hospitality towards Ross's expedition was tinged with frustration. His role in Van Diemen's land was a career dead end, and he longed to have a command akin to that afforded Ross. In spite of his age, his desires were echoed and amplified by his younger socially ambitious wife, Lady Jane Franklin, and the fire that the Erebus and Terras stay in Hobart lit under them will see the Franklins re-enter the narrative towards the end of this episode. While in Hobart, Ross received the letter and chart Wilkes sent him from the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. Wilkes' notes informed Ross's plans for the expedition. Determined to explore coasts the American and French expeditions had not visited, and suspecting a more easterly approach using Balinese ice-free passage at 170 degrees east would offer a better chance of reaching the South Magnetic Pole based on Wilkes' estimate of its position, the Erebus and Terra sailed to the Auckland Islands, south of New Zealand, in November. There they found two boards conspicuously mounted on a beach, noting that Wilkes visited the island on the 10th of March, and that De was only a day behind him. Magnetic surveys ensued. Then the ships transited to the Campbell Islands, and from there headed south on December 17th. They crossed Bellingshausen's track on the 30th of December, and crossed the Antarctic Circle on New Year's Day. An issue of warm clothing added to the New Year's traditions of extra rations and double grog. The Erebus and Terra, bluff-bowed and ponderous, proved themselves worthy of the Admiralty's confidence in their ice-strengthening modifications. Navigating their way through what little ice littered the passage with ease and entering the pack around the 5th of January. The ships took the shocks admirably, but the crews were relieved to find more scattered floes lay behind the outer belt of close pack. As the expedition sailed south down their chosen meridian, mountain peaks peaked over the horizon. Further south than the land sighted by Bellingshausen, Ross and Co. had discovered Victoria Land. Naming it after their young queen and naming the mountains the Admiralty Range. The nearest headland was named Cape Adair after Ross's friend, the Viscount Adair, Member of Parliament for Glamorganshire. Cape Adair will feature in later episodes about Borkravink, but stands as geographically interesting because it marks the western margin of the Ross Sea. If you're tooling along in the southern ocean heading east, you can turn to starboard at Cape Adair, and just like that, you're in the Ross Sea. Navigating's easy with ice coffee. A landing was attempted but made impossible by ice and heavy surf, so Ross set foot on a nearby island which, in the best traditions of the Royal Navy, he named Possession Island. His crew raised a flag, gave a cheer and drank to the health of their monarch. Again, this is lame as all get out in terms of establishing a claim to a landmass, but more than most sailors of the area attempted, to the chagrin of several subsequent governments. Then they piled their tender high with rocks and penguins and returned to the ship. The ship sailed south into the Ross Sea and the sheltered region that Ross named McMurdo Bay after a lieutenant aboard the Terra. This area would later play a key geographic role in several expeditions and serve as the site of several research bases. But as the first people to visit the area, everything was new grist for the charting mills. The Fox dip circles showed the ships were approaching the South Magnetic Pole as they sailed onward, but Ross calculated it must lay several hundred nautical miles further southwest. The ships sailed south, chasing down maximum dippage. At the southern end of the Sound, they discovered an active volcano, dominating the landscape with its bulk spitting fire from its caldera and throwing large rocks known as bombs to volcanologists down its flanks. The mountain was named Erebus completing an odd circuit in that bomb ships were usually named after volcanoes or some aspect of the underworld in Greek mythology. Depending on whose works you read Erebus was either the region of darkness separating the realm of mortals from Hades or a primordial deity of shadows. If only this discovery was foreseeable Someone with my sense of humour could have given Ross command of the HMS Vesuvius. A volcano named after a ship named after a volcano has a certain pleasing symmetry. Better still, he could have been given HMS Volcano. A volcano named Mount Volcano, after a ship named after a geographical feature named after a Greek fire god, has a greater quotient of sublime ridicularity. Joseph Heller can stick his Major Major in his Erebus. The second highest peak on the island was named Mount Terra. A tertiary peak between the two was later named Terra Nova, after a later ship. The island, Ross named after Sir John Franklin, but today we know it as Ross Island. Sailing on past the volcanic island and its volcanoes, the ships lay well past Weddell's record for furthest south. They still hoped to find a path through which to sail to the south magnetic pole, but the way was blocked by a wall of ice. Towering, unbroken ice cliffs disappeared into the distance. While I had no way of knowing it at the time, this wall of ice extends hundreds of nautical miles to the east, and is only the margin of a body of ice extending hundreds of miles to the south, comprising the combined floating ice tongues of the many glaciers cascading into the Ross Sea from the Antarctic Dome. Ross named the phenomenon the Great Ice Barrier, likely with Matthew Flinders' recent coining of the Great Barrier Reef in mind, though today we call it the Ross Ice Shelf. The Erebus and Terror charted the ice cliffs for 200 nautical miles, as far as 160 degrees east, but saw no end to the barrier. Knowing the magnetic pole lay out of their reach in their current circumstances, it was double rum rations all around and the ships headed north again, looking for a sheltered harbour in which to winter. Finding no satisfactory anchorage, the ships left the Ross Sea and en route to Hobart, passed by the Baligny Islands and across what Wilkes had marked as a coastline on his chart. The Erebus and Terror wintered in Hobart and Sydney, the crews keeping busy with scientific observations and the repair and reprovisioning of the ships, before departing south again in November 1841. In December the ships reached the Ross Sea, but by Christmas the ships were trapped in a palenya, An open water gap in otherwise unbroken sea ice. The ships were still trapped on New Year's Day when the crews let down onto the sea ice to make forty snow sculptures and enjoy a traditional naval hair letting down, featuring drag acts and much dancing in the midnight sunlight. By mid-January the pack was broken up enough to allow the ship some movement but the cracking that allowed the ship's leeway also allowed the ice to tear off the Terra's rudder and to damage that of the Erebus. Running repairs allowed the ships to continue south, but the frequent impacts gave Ross little confidence that his ships could last. In mid-February, the ice barrier loomed above the ship's masts once more and continued to refuse to yield openings. Some progress further east and a slight boost to the record for southernmost expedition were the only rewards for several days of hard sailing. The new southern limit of human endeavour, 78 degrees, 10 minutes south, stood as the record for 50 years. The ship set north with the aim of wintering in the Falklands. On March 12th, in failing light and falling snow, and hemmed in by icebergs, the Terra collided with the Erebus, and the two ships locked together by their rigging, were pushed towards the ice shore presented by a large berg. The Terra got clear but took so much of the Erebus rigging with her that the larger ship was left crippled. Close enough to the berg that spray from the surf breaking on its flanks rained down on the Erebus deck, Ross folded his arms and calmly ordered a sternboard manoeuvre, a kind of three-point turn requiring the ship to sail backwards. Difficult to execute at the best of times, let alone in strong winds against a lee shore with the masts and rigging half-torn away, the order made the best use of the remaining useful sails, and the ship gained sternway enough to buy them some time. With the wind and swell pushing them toward the vertical walls presented by two close-set bergs, Ross picked the gap and fell into calm water to lure of the massive icebergs, where the damage to the ships could be assessed and addressed. Three days of running repairs followed and the Erebus was once again able to set course for the Falklands. The Erebus and Terra spent five months at the Falklands and attempted to follow Waddell's lead south of the Atlantic in December 1842. Where Waddell found open water, Ross found dense pack ice. Tracking east, the pack eventually yielded enough space to cross the circle and eventually achieve 71 degrees 30 minutes south by mid-March, but the Waddell Sea was too tightly packed with pack to afford more in the way of discoveries or records. The officers signed a declaration stating their discoveries, sealed it in a cask and threw it overboard as insurance against their not getting home. As far as I know, this cask never turned up anywhere, and by the conspiracy theory prevalent as I write this, that means it's currently in a warehouse in the USA, next to the Ark of the Covenant and the Roswell Flying Saucer. The ships returned to London in September 1843, marking the end of Ross's Antarctic forays. Notably, are the polar opposite of those Cook made. Where Cook expressed horror at the desolate vistas the Antarctic presented him, Ross and his officers wrote in terms of delight at the grandeur. Ross, informed by years of Arctic disappointment, thought the land sighted on his own, Wilkes', and De Vere's expedition likely joined up, but did not speculate that this mass comprised the outer margin of a pole-spanning continent. De Vere thought that that's what he and his fellow explorers cited, but granted that this could only be confirmed by those who would follow, if they could successfully breach the pack-ice and map solid coasts. Wilkes was the least circumspect, claiming the continent as a firmly established fact. Given the number of punters already embarrassed for claiming a continent where only islands existed, reminds us to count the misses before getting too excited about the hits. Ross's cautious assessment constituted the sound scientific position at the time. History, on the other hand, loves a lucky punter. Wilkes called his speculated continent Antarctica as a proper noun, and the name is stuck to this day. Well played, Wilkes. Pity your reputation didn't prove to have similar legs. Ross's expedition report, noting the absence of Wilkes' reported coastline near the Ballinie Islands, riled Wilkes. Already under attack on several fronts, he attempted to defuse Ross's insinuation he was making shit up by claiming that Ross misinterpreted a conditional coastal extension Wilkes proposed based on Ballinie's reports. Ross, unconvinced, used this cartographic shortcoming to justify leaving all of Wilkes' reported discoveries off a chart in which he incorporated those features reported by Biscoe, Ballany and Devere, with his own extensive coastal observations, publishing Wilkes' material as an appendix to this chart. No slight slight in geographers' circles. Ross was awarded scientific medals, a knighthood and election to the Royal Society for his efforts. Crozier was awarded the promotion that Ross recommended. The Erebus and the Terra were refitted with single-expansion steam engines turning screws, an improvement over the paddle wheel arrangements described in episode 15. Screws are more efficient than paddle wheels at converting horsepower into motion, and are less prone to damage while working among pack ice. The ship's boilers were also plumbed to provide heat to the living quarters. Steam engines particularly the inefficient, single-expansion type fitted to the Erebus and Terror, are hungry beasts, and a large percentage of the ship's storage space, previously available for food and water, became coal-bunkering. While the Royal Navy became more meritocratic than the nation it served, long before preparations for the 1845 expedition to find the Northwest Passage began, Francis Crozier was overlooked for the leadership role that his competence in Arctic and Antarctic expeditions to date warranted. Some authors speculate this oversight occurred because his Northern Irish heritage put him at a social disadvantage to officers from nobby backgrounds, and his being Presbyterian in an era of supreme Anglican snobbery likely did him no favours either. The leadership went to Sir John Franklin. Elderly and less competent, likely much of the credit for the plum roll falling his way lies with his, wife's, lies with his wife's avid advocacy and social connections. Giving the knife an extra twist, Crozier's proposal of marriage to Franklin's niece, Sophia Crackcroft, who travelled with the Franklins as Lady Jane's secretary, was rebuffed shortly before the ships departed. Sophia's deeming him too poor a speller, being the passive-aggressive way of telling him that he was beneath her. A melancholy Crozier is reported as commenting to fellow officers that he did not expect to return from the journey. Hindsight bias might allow us to label this gloomy projection prophetic, but perhaps he said that before each sailing. Either way, he was correct on this occasion. His final correspondence, passed to the transport Barretto Jr. as she turned for England, is a plaintive missive to James Clark Ross lamenting their separation. In 1848, the Admiralty gave Sir James command of the HMS Enterprise and HMS Investigator sending him north as one of three expeditions seeking the overdue Erebus and Terror. Frozen in for, what, his ninth winter above the Arctic Circle, Ross and Francis McClintock made a sledging journey to survey Somerset Island. Ross spotted from its western coast that Peel Sound was full of pack ice and incorrectly discounted it as a route Franklin may have led his expedition. In 1854... Scottish explorer and eventual discoverer of the final link in the Northwest Passage, John Ray, later learnt from the Inuit that ships had entered Peel Sound at the time of Franklin's foray. The Inuit sold Ray a silver plate, engraved with Franklin's name, confirming the identity of the people they described. Ray reported grim news to the Admiralty. If the Inuit were correct, two ships were wrecked in the ice and the survivors resorted to cannibalism. Leaked to the press, the news saw Lady Jane Franklin, previously an enthusiastic supporter of Ray's forays in search of her husband, turn against him and employ her social connections to damn him for his unpatriotic and personally offensive heresy. How dare he accurately report his findings after spending years of his life competently traversing icy wastes at her behest. The bastard. Englishmen would never resort to cannibalism. I've had several interesting discussions about cannibalism with the people I'm most likely to spend time in a lifeboat with. I'm okay with it, so long as the process of working out who's going in the pot is fair. But some of my colleagues recoil in horror at the posited hypothetical, claiming nothing could ever induce them to partake in human flesh. I think the best counter I can offer to such revulsion is to encourage them to fast for three or four days, refusing all food to the point that hunger becomes inescapably painful, and only then return to the discussion. If they can claim, while I tuck into a doughnut, that they'd willingly let the gnawing, all-consuming hunger carry on rather than sully their lips with human flesh, I'll take them seriously. Lady Jane's smear campaign against John Ray employed the rhetorical talents of Charles Dickens, who penned several pamphlets asserting that British sailors would never stoop to cannibalism, and that John Ray was a pooh poo head. The smearing succeeded. John Ray found himself shunned. Franklin received credit for discovering the Northwest Passage, when what he'd actually done was get his ships wrecked and his crews killed for no geographic or scientific gain. Where contemporaries who achieved far less in their careers received public plaudits and knighthoods, John Ray, the foremost British expert in Arctic travel and survival of his age, died at the ripe age of 80, but largely unrecognised outside his hometown and circle of friends. Several books telling his story exist, but it's only in the past decade that pushes by Ray enthusiasts have seen some redress in terms of plaques and statues in public spaces. I encourage everyone to have a look around their lives and spot the people not getting the credit they deserve, and giving them some props. Telling people they were loved and respected at their funeral is likely to fall on dead ears. Ray deserves memorials, but more than that, He deserved not to be vilified by the people who asked for his assistance. He deserved public recognition for his achievements in his lifetime. And it's with that melancholy thought in mind that I give thanks to Nigel McConnell and his father, Ian McConnell, who taught me a lot about myself and about farming. Cheers, fellas. Take care, everyone, and appreciate your coffee.